We're in John chapter 1, verses 32 to 51. And uh, this morning we're in the New American Standard version instead of the English Standard. So I can't tell you what page number it is on your English Standard Bible. John chapter 1, verses 32 through 51. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Again the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You may be seated. I promised uh, Pastor Thomas that I would not be teaching any new deep theologies today, that he would have to come home from camp and explain my heresy. So we're, we're going to try, try to stay in safe territory today, but I want you to use your imaginations, and sometimes some of you have such great imaginations, that is dangerous territory anyway. But let's start off by imagining that you and millions of other people are stuck on an island that you cannot escape. And on this island, every single person suffers from the same horrible, debilitating disease. Everyone suffers from this disease from birth. 
Now, some seem to suffer more than others. Some die sooner than others. But this horrible disease is passed from generation to generation. And it always inevitably leads to death. And I can see from some of your looks, you're thinking, boy, this is uplifting so far. (laughs) But wait, there are some people on this island, a relatively small group of people, who have heard stories of a healer who has the cure for this disease and who is eventually coming to help us and, and others on the island. Now, of course, some folks have dismissed them as Crazy, foolish dreamers who just won't accept the reality of their faith, which is pretty simple. You can't get off the island. You're just going to live miserably and die. Some folks put these dreamers in a category of kooks. (laughs) But others see that the dreamers have a pretty good idea what the healer is supposed to be like and some pretty specific understandings of what they're looking for. And though they've been searching for him high and low for many years without success, they're still looking. When suddenly he appears among you, calling some to follow him and receive the cure. Now, imagine you are one of the first persons the healer spoke to. One of the first persons the healer called. One of the first to learn who he was. What would you do? Who would you tell? What would you say? And is there someone specific in your life that you would really want to reach with that message before you reached all others? With the message that the healer has come. That's what we're looking into today. That's the situation we find in John chapter 1 when John the Baptist was sent by God to rally the dreamers to prepare the way for the healer. When the word became flesh and dwelt among us, when Jesus appeared and began preparing to cure the scourge of sin and death in the world. When people began calling to one another to come and see that they'd found the cure for our fatal condition. That's what this passage is all about. Today we're going to look at the way Jesus called his first disciples. In John chapter 1, I'm going to start maybe around verse 35, going through 51. We'll look at also the way these disciples called others. And hopefully the Lord will help us find in this passage a few keys to our own effectiveness in reaching out to others in Jesus' name and leading them to the healer. To set the stage further for the passage We need to understand that John the Baptist has already been preaching in the wilderness for some time, teaching of the Messiah to come. This Messiah who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. He has already attracted a rather large group of followers himself. And then in verse 34, we see John tell his own followers that he has already seen and he has already borne witness that this is the Son of God. And that initial experience of seeing probably is detailed better in Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus came to John to be baptized. But after John has told his disciples that he has seen and borne witness to this healer, we get to verse 35. And again, on the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. So right off the bat, We learn something about 
one personal relationship that contributes to the story. The two men in verses 34 and 35 are referred to as disciples. John the Baptist's disciples. That's an important relationship word. Disciple. Biblically, a disciple is uh, basically a student, but the relationship is far more than academic. And a disciple is a follower, but the relationship is far deeper than Taylor Swift's fan club. This is a follower, a disciple, a, 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 a protege, an apprentice, all those wrapped up together. It's a personal relationship of trust and respect and commitment and submission and perhaps even love for a master or a teacher. Now, in the Bible, a disciple of anyone, not just Jesus, would sometimes refer to that teacher as rabbi or even using the word Lord. And the word of that master, that teacher, was usually taken as the truth. The commands of that Lord were followed. That's why in verse 37, when we see, And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus, you might question their loyalty for a moment. These two disciples of John the Baptist might seem to have turned away from their master to follow another who was just introduced. But really, they're following the teaching that John has already given them. You see, this is the second time that John has referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God in the presence of his disciples. If you look back to verse 29, which wasn't in our reading this morning, John was baptizing people at Bethany, and Jesus walked by, and John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Boy, he's identified that fatal condition, hasn't he? He said the healer is here, getting ready to take it away. One of the commentators I was reading talked about that taking away, really like lifting something off of someone, lifting a burden off and putting it someplace else. That's what the Lamb of God was about to do. And of course, in Jewish society, they could understand what a lamb was. It wasn't just the animal on the hillside. It was the offering on the table. It was the blood that was shed to cover their sins. And so when he said, behold, the Lamb of God, Jesus was telling his disciples and the entire world that this is the Messiah he was sent to proclaim. This is the healer with the cure. This is the one who's going to lift the guilt of sin off of anyone who would believe. I mean, in John 1.15, he said, this one is far superior to me. He said, he who comes after me has higher rank than me, for he existed before me. So when these two disciples who were mentioned in verse 35 decided to follow Jesus, they weren't betraying their first master. They were simply following his teachings. He was one they trusted and loved, so they sought out the new master endorsed by him because they already trusted their old master. They already had that close personal relationship with John the Baptist, and now we're about to see it turn into a personal relationship with Jesus. In verse 38, Jesus turned and beheld them following and said to him, and once again, as Tim pointed out, Jesus asked a lot of questions. He said to them, 
what do you seek? Now, I don't think Jesus really didn't understand what these guys were looking for, but he needed to confirm it in their hearts. What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you'll see. They came, therefore, and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now, some of you may know Dr. Carl Laney from Western Seminary. Well, Carl's retired from Western Seminary. Um, I spent some time with him hiking through the book of John with Carolyn years ago. It was a wonderful time up in the wilderness going through the book of John. And in Carl's commentary on the book of John, he suggests the question, where are you staying, was in itself an indication that these two wanted some type of discipleship relationship with Jesus. In those days, teachers didn't have a physical school building, typically. that One might teach under that tree. One might be staying over in the neighboring village, and you'd come visit him at his house. Where are you staying? meant they wanted to go where Jesus was going, and they wanted to sit under his teaching. So Jesus responded with a very simple invitation, not a detailed explanation. Just come, and you'll see. In case you're a person that's distracted by numbers that get thrown out in Scripture, let me distract you with one. He said this happened about the 10th hour. Well, the 10th hour in that verse would have been about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So depending on whether the author was using the Jewish way of measuring a day or the Roman way of measuring a day, these disciples probably spent somewhere between 2 and 8 hours with Jesus in that initial visit with him right off the bat. But whatever happened in that short period of time set their hearts to follow him forever. So let's go back to this first interaction. The disciples' personal relationship with John the Baptist is what led them to seek a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And seeing their desire, Jesus then invited them to spend time with him. Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, most scholars believe that other one, whose name was not used, is the one who became the Apostle John, who wrote down this story. Because throughout the Gospel of John, he refers to himself by name only once. And every other place in the Gospel, he refers to himself only indirectly, calling himself something like the disciple whom Jesus loved, as though he had a unique personal relationship. And that helps because, think about it, if If the author, John, had used his first name every time he wrote down the story, we would constantly be confusing him with John the Baptist in this first chapter. And even having clarified that, some of us still get confused as we're reading through the scripture, which John we're talking about. So back to verse 40, we see that another close personal relationship is coming into play. Turns out this first disciple with John has a brother a brother named Simon. Verse 41 says, and he found his own brother, Simon. Oh, excuse me, I left a word out. He found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. Um, You probably know this, but the the Hebrew word Mashiach, which becomes Messiah when it's transliterated, uh, means the same as the Greek word Christos, which, means, which is translated Christ, both of them mean the anointed one. 
Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. That is, he brought Simon to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and he said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated into Greek, Petra, which is translated into English, the rock. (laughs) Here's the rock. But I want to draw your attention not to that definition, but to two verbs in the passage. Found and brought. The text tells us the first person Andrew found or went to get was his brother Peter. There was an intentionality to finding his brother. And Peter wasn't with him when he met Jesus, so Peter obviously didn't know Jesus yet. He might have been out fishing or something. They had a fishing business. But Andrew actively sought out and found his brother wherever he was. And he excitedly gave him a message. We have found the Messiah. There's that word found again. It implies they'd been looking for him. They together had been looking for the Messiah for some time. And obviously Andrew expected his brother Peter, or Simon, to know what the Messiah meant, what the word meant. The idea that God was sending an anointed one to save the Jewish people and the whole world for that matter goes all the way back to the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah had spoken of him as one who would be called Emmanuel, um, which means God with us. Isaiah had also described the Messiah as one who would be despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He said that his stripes, his wounds would heal us and he would take our sin upon his shoulders. Jewish theologians up to that point had had trouble reconciling all the prophecies and predictions of a Messiah and and they couldn't see them fulfilled in Jesus. Their eyes had been darkened. But after just one day of experience with Jesus, Andrew was sure. Andrew was sure enough to tell his brother, we have found the Messiah. Which reminds us that an experience with Jesus can be that powerful. Sometimes more convincing than hours of theological debate over the nuance of Scripture. Which, I must confess, I am want to do from time to time as well. But look at this. Andrew didn't just tell his brother the biblical truth and leave it there. He didn't say, hey, we found the Messiah. Hey, we found the Messiah and take off. He loved his brother. That personal relationship with his brother was important to him. And so he wanted Simon to have a personal relationship with Jesus too. The text says he brought him to Jesus. Now, I don't know what to picture. I don't know if he grabbed his brother by the hand and walked him to Jesus or he tossed him on an ox cart and said, let's get over there right now. I don't know that part. But he got Simon to a place where he could meet Jesus. He brought him to the Savior. And what did Jesus do? Well, he gave Simon a new name. You heard it, Cephas or Peter or Rock. Now, few things are as personal as a name. If you call my wife Carolyn, Caroline, she will work really hard not to wince. If you, there's some people I've met who have unique spellings of their name, and if you forget a letter, you'll hear about it. If you, if you don't understand how personal a name is, uh, introduce somebody incorrectly to a crowd, 
and you will find out about it. We sometimes lose all our grace <laughs> when people forget who we are. We feel like the name defines us. Names are very personal. So for Jesus to give Simon a new name, Peter, was a very personal act, the kind of act that reflected the authority of a master over a disciple, to give him a new name for his new service. And in this case, of course, we know that the name had a meaning depicting the disciple's purpose in life. And if you want to know a little bit more about that, look in Matthew chapter 16 and look at the lengthy discussion that uh, Jesus had with Simon Peter about his new name and his position. But for now, let's summarize this interaction. Andrew's personal relationship with Simon is what caused him to go and find him, to tell him about and bring him to Jesus. And then Jesus immediately gave Simon a new name, indicating that he, Cephas, now had a personal relationship with Jesus. So in the first case, we saw that a personal relationship with a godly leader, John the Baptist, led two disciples to Jesus. And in the second case, we find another personal relationship, that of brotherhood, led another disciple to Jesus. But now we see a third case, Jesus himself doing some outreach in verse 43. The next day he purposed to go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So it is quite possible that Philip already knew Andrew and Peter. They could have been buddies. They could have met in the street. But the text only tells us that Jesus found Philip. It doesn't suggest there was any pre-evangelism to set Philip up to make this major decision or that he had been warned in advance, this guy's coming to talk to you by Andrew and Simon. Now, not that his buddies pressured him into join this new growing movement. Just we're told that Jesus found Philip and said, follow me. And remember in the earlier cases of saying this, found Suggestion underneath it is that he was actually looking, like Jesus was seeking. We are told that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. It was not an accident that he found Philip, and he just said, follow me. So unlike the first two examples where human personal relationships were instrumental in calling people to Jesus, Philip was called directly by the Savior without using any other human intermediary. Which reminds us of something very important. It really is up to Jesus. If we don't practice any evangelism or structure any outreach in our churches, the Savior will still be out there seeking and saving the lost. And even if we do, it is still Jesus is doing the seeking and saving. But we may be doing the finding and bringing even the Apostle Paul, who worked tirelessly to spread the gospel and to plant and grow churches in numerous locations, told the Corinthians, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. And yet we're given gifts with which we are called to do planting and watering. Of course, that's exactly what Philip did as soon as Jesus called him. 
Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Like Andrew, Philip found someone he knew. And he did the same thing Andrew had done. He shared what he knew and what he believed about Jesus. He shared his experience. But for the first time we see an evangelist facing an obstacle, a little bit of resistance. And Nathaniel said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. That was interesting to me. Come and see is worded almost exactly the same in the Greek as what Jesus said to the first two disciples who asked him where he was staying. Come and see. Offered an opportunity for an experience. You notice Philip didn't take the bait. He didn't get trapped into an argument. And that could have been easy to do. Uh, Nathaniel's first response to hearing the good news about Jesus was rather snippy. (laughs) Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, not only was Nazareth a fairly insignificant little town, but one Bible commentator suggests Nathaniel might have been sniping at the town's reputation among other Jews. That it was perhaps considered a bit unclean. You see, Nazareth was only about four miles from the city. It was the capital of Galilee, the Roman capital of Galilee, Sephorus. And the Romans were seen as occupying forces. So many folks from Nazareth had been, uh, well, working for the occupiers, making a good living, helping provide a good life for the Romans. So you could probably understand why the people of Nazareth were rather disliked by some other Jews at the time. Nonetheless, apparently figured uh, Philip uh, had in mind that a personal meeting with Jesus was better than any argument he could muster that would explain who the Messiah was. So he simply issued the invitation to Nathaniel, come and see. And Nathaniel came. They say seeing is believing. You probably grabbed it out of this, out of this passage. We needed to come and see. Of course, I I hope it wasn't drawn from when Thomas had to have his fingers thrust into Jesus' wounds to prove something, because then my namesake is the one who caused that weird thing to happen. I think the come and see is how you learn about Jesus one way or the other. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. One might, if you wanted to read into it, see sarcasm there. I don't think it's there. But, you know, here, here's the guy who just sniped, at, sniped about him. And he's going, oh, here's the guy who's got no guile in him. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. What may not be apparent in the English is that Jesus is actually praising Nathaniel's character. Now, he knows what Nathaniel has just said. But he says there's nothing false, no guile, no mean-spirited nature in Nathaniel, despite that comment. It may have been a legitimate concern, a theological uh, idea that nothing good could come out of Nazareth. 
But then after praising Nathanael, Jesus shocks him with the explanation that Jesus had seen him even before Philip called him. And he gave him that piece of evidence. You were sitting under that fig tree, weren't you? Now, Jesus had a piece of knowledge that only God, Philip, and Nathaniel could have had. Unless there was someone else standing around that particular fig tree who ran to give Jesus advance notice that Nathaniel was coming. Make sure you know this. But that's not likely. Nathaniel recognized the supernatural nature of Jesus' knowledge when he responded, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So again, we see what benefits come from a personal invitation, from a personal relationship. Philip's personal relationship with Jesus led him to invite his friend Nathaniel to personally come and see Jesus. And Jesus did all the rest. In fact, it was Jesus causing the increase all along. So in this short snippet in John chapter 1, we've seen the story of the calling of five men who became disciples of Jesus. John and Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. And there were, of course, many more. There were 12 disciples, including these five, who later became apostles and were tasked with spreading the word of salvation through Jesus and leading his church even after he was gone. So there were hundreds and hundreds and possibly thousands more who became students of Jesus during his lifetime, the next three years. Some remained faithful to him. Others followed him for a while and then walked away. And millions upon millions have come to the healer since then. But these five who we read about this morning were among the core group of the faithful, the first to decide to follow Jesus, even though they had no idea where that would take them. And most of the churches I work with as a missionary for in faith are just small groups of Jesus followers as well. Usually more than five of them, uh, but they're small groups nonetheless. And I'm often asked to advise them on how to reach out to their neighbors, how to impact their community for Christ. And many, unfortunately, seem to be looking for a magic bullet, the, the, the grand solution, maybe a special event or a special program or a strategic plan that will pack their facility. But I don't have any to offer. In fact, those who look honestly at the foundational Aspects of sharing the good news realize there is no magic bullet, but there is a biblical approach. A guy named Clyde Holdke was one of the authors of a book called A Theology of Church Leadership. And I don't endorse everything in Holdke's book, but I, it was some interesting uh, writing. He was not a professional preacher at the time he co-wrote the book. He was a church elder who actually was also the founder and chairman of one of the largest home-building companies in Florida. His expertise was his knowing how to plan and operate businesses, large and small. His co-writer, uh, Dr. Lawrence Richards, worked with him, and together they saw a significant difference between the way they suggested businesses should be run 
and the way Jesus taught his followers to lead the church. So one time a friend of Clyde's asked him for suggestions on how to expand their church program and their outreach program, and his answer was simply, try not to plan any. He wasn't being sarcastic. He was being realistic. Clyde went on to explain, don't get me wrong, I am not against organization and corporate goal setting. I make a living doing those things. What I really want to get across is that planning, staffing, and supervising outreach programs is a counterproductive effort for spiritual leaders in local churches. All the management techniques in the world won't get Christ's job done satisfactorily. However, the biblical approach really works. Interesting, uh, as I came in this morning, I didn't know you guys were going to do a study on questioning evangelism. Um, I also didn't know there'd be a book in your lob, uh, lobby that uh, is entitled Evangelism, and I guess uh, you've been sharing it with folks. Uh, it's written by J. Max Stiles. And in the introduction, it says, Our basic message to churches is, don't look at the best business practices or latest styles, look to God. Start by listening to God's word again. So if I were to summarize the one idea of one biblical approach to outreach that we saw this morning is that outreach is about relationships. Just as it was in the calling of the first disciples, it's about relationships. It's about your relationship with Jesus Christ, the healer, your relationships with other people, and a desire to lead them into their own relationship with Jesus. Going back to those two verbs I, I pointed out earlier, found and brought. Folks, we individually and corporately as the church need to do a lot more finding and bringing. We need to be more intentional about sharing this exciting news with, first and foremost, those we know and love. And that doesn't just mean finding people and bringing them to church. I want to make that clear. Although it, it would be nice to see uh, every church and every sanctuary uh, in America have every seat filled every Sunday. I don't really think that's the goal. It may be the result of God's blessing, as it was during the many awakenings that have occurred at different times in, in American history, but that shouldn't be our goal to fill the seats and fill the coffers of our churches. The purpose of reaching out and finding friends and neighbors is to bring them to Jesus, and he will do the rest. Invite people to come and see Jesus the way you've seen him. Whether that's in a church service, or in a private personal conversation, or in a Bible study, or in a meal outside on a sunny day, come and see is probably the best invitation to offer. Invite people to come and see what you have seen and share with them what you have experienced and learned. In reaching our neighbors, we are seeking relationships, not just recruits. We begin those relationships by cultivating conversations about what we've experienced with Jesus. Sometimes that may include the necessity of stopping the counting of converts and coming up with zero, but starting to count conversations and seeds planted and fields watered and let Jesus cause the increase and measure it all he wants. So what do those conversations look like? 
That's a good question. It depends on you, your relationship with Jesus, and your relationship with others. But it's possible there's someone here today who's still seeking something. And doesn't quite know, maybe you don't know quite how to explain what it is you found. Or you don't think you know enough about Jesus to share anything with anybody. And you certainly don't want one of those theological arguments that'll make you feel like you should know more. It may be that the only place you know where to find and learn from Jesus is inside these walls. Even though we know he's everywhere. If this is what you know. If this is what you've experienced. Keep coming. And seeing what the Lord has to say through Pastor Thomas here every Sunday. Or in the Bible studies. Or in the fellowship. Or in the interaction with others. Even then, find someone you know. Share what you know, what you've experienced, and bring them to come and see Jesus in your life. Let me make this even simpler. Even if you don't know what you believe about Jesus yet, there's something that brings you through the door to this church today and perhaps on other Sundays. Would you be willing to share even that something with someone who means something to you? Maybe you're just glad to have found a place where you can explore Christianity in a place where the Bible is taught well, where you can ask questions of others without being embarrassed. If that's what you found, share that and invite someone else to come and see. Maybe you've sensed that in this room you found a group of people that truly cares for each other. And I got to tell you, over my years of experience with the men in the Church of the Mountain, Mostly the men. Sorry, ladies, I get to talk to you from here, but the guys I've camped with. (laughs) That's true. There's a deep, loving, relational feel to this fellowship. And if that's what you've found, but don't quite know why it's there, still share. Share that. Invite someone else to come and see and experience that relationship, which is an outgrowth of a relationship with Jesus. Maybe what you found here is that you found other people who talk honestly about life and death and faith and future. Share that and invite someone to come and see. That's how individual outreach works. That's a one disciple called another in John 1, not by being the expert, but by being transparent, being excited, being enthusiastic about finding the healer. Now, there are other examples of outreach in the Bible, times when thousands were reached all at once, and the church was growing exponentially. And probably the biggest example we find is in Acts chapter 2, when uh, everybody running any church is trying to emulate that. Acts 2.46 says, Day by day they were continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. And they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. They were praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. But we notice that even this large corporate depiction of the growth of the church This reflection on many people growing as one body has a very relational feel to it. Breaking bread from house to house is very personal. It's celebrated with gladness and sincerity of heart. These were not massive 
rallies or mailing campaigns or even door-to-door sharing of the four spiritual laws. And I'm not putting those things down, but what we see is just spirit-driven, natural, relational growth in Christ. Growing together, believers sharing and inviting others to come and see as the Holy Spirit takes over the teaching. And did you see who was responsible for the increase in Acts 2.46? It says the Lord was adding to their number day by day. So I invite this church at this time in your body life to spend a little time in reflection on the individual personal aspect of outreach. And it sounds like your leaders have already got that in mind. It can be helpful. So there are three relationships I want you to be thinking about and praying about today as we close. First, your own relationship with Jesus Christ. Second is your relationship with at least one other person you care about or should care about. And third, probably most importantly, that other person's personal relationship with Christ Jesus. Now, what do you do with these things once you've thought about them? Well, I'm inviting you in the next couple of moments to come and see, to come to God in prayer with me, to see or hear what Jesus wants to say to you about how to enact this relational development of bringing people to the healer. So will you bow your heads and pray with me, and the worship team could come up and and be prepared. Father, we have come today, and we see in your word the way your love has drawn people to you the way the relationships in your disciples' lives multiplied many times over when guided by your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray you'll do that kind of thing among us. Now, Lord, I, 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 I pray you'll help me as I, as I speak to those who are praying here today. Folks, I want you to each now to think of as you're speaking with the Father of your relationship with the healer, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If there is anything in that relationship that is currently getting in the way of you sharing with with someone else, Jesus can help you work that out today, and he wants to. So in your heart, take a moment and tell him about it and come and see what he wants to do. Second, Lord, I, I want to ask these folks to consider the coming and bring, or the finding and bringing. Folks, pray about one person you care about. Commit yourself to seek them out and find them, to tell them about who Jesus is to you. And then invite them to come and see maybe here, maybe somewhere else, maybe just in your life. And third, pray about their potential relationship with Jesus and ask Him to call them even before you get to their fig tree to call them on your own. Father, all of us here today were plagued by the terrible disease of sin which leads only to suffering and death. But many of us, Lord, Many of us, you pray, praise you because you have brought us the healer, your son, Jesus Christ. And we've learned that the cure is in his blood, which was shed for us. 
Help us, Lord, to joyfully share this amazing good news with those around us, to lead them into the safety of relationship with him. In whose name we pray to you tonight. Amen.